Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3. This morning we're going to be studying verses 22 through 36 at the end of the chapter. So you see there picking up in verse 22 of John 3 that John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That after this, that is after this conversation, this most important conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus about the new birth and about faith in Christ. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. <clears throat> and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. On him. Would you pray with me? Lord, you said just in this text that we cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to us by the grace of heaven. And so please be gracious to us now as we seek to open up your word. May Christ be most highly exalted and may our hearts be lifted up with a fullness of joy in him. We ask it for his glory and in his name. Amen. 
Our text this morning uh, is, is one about essence. You think of salt. If salt loses its saltiness, Jesus says, it has lost its essence. It's lost its purpose. It's good for nothing. Or think of life on earth. How essential is that star that sitting 93 million miles away is yet bright enough and big enough and close enough to power life as we know it, right? If that thing goes dark, everything we know dies. There's a reason that we call things that we cannot do without essentials. But now as one who has been kindly set aside by you for the privilege of studying Scripture and studying you and studying culture, I just want to tell you that a lot of Christianity today leaves much to be desired as to what is most essential about it, namely Jesus. It's one thing to say Jesus has no place in the world. It's another thing entirely to wonder if He has a place among you and me. That is whether he has a place in the Christian life, whether he has a place in the Christian ministry, whether he has a place in the churches that bear his name. It seems there is another more serious kind of virus spreading around in our day, what Michael Horton calls Christ-less Christianity. Christ-less Christianity. A Christianity that is no Christianity, at least not in any biblical sense. A Christianity that has lost its essence. Its focus, however, in His name is on what best suits our own glory. It becomes a religion of us. Right? We demote the word for results. We cut preaching for platforming. Uh, we throw prayer to the wind because pragmatism can't wait on patience, can't afford that. Uh, we smooth over the, the sharp or the rough edges of the gospel because piercing hearts that way reduces the size of crowds. We draw up church... We use God's Word, we alter the message, we go about our lives as we see fit. And if we're not granted that liberty, we pitch a fit because it's all about us instead of Jesus. And so we're willing to cancel out the Son, so to speak. We're willing to be a rival of Christ and the true Christianity that refuses to give Jesus less than the honor of first place. Oh, how he must increase. And oh, how we must then decrease. With that, let's come to our text starting in verse 22. And first consider Jesus increasing. John seems to lay out an occasion of what I call religious rivalry at least on one side of a people who are supposed to be on the same team. Jesus and his disciples have left the city for the Judean countryside, and right there, uh, they've begun to, to baptize people. And John immediately follows that up with, oh, and also John, and presumably his disciples were continuing to baptize those who were continuing to come to him for baptism, despite the testimony that John had borne about Jesus. So it seems we have a kind of turf war going on here, or maybe better, a kind of water fight. It's about baptism. Okay? And as we go, I think the parenthesis of verse 24 is especially worth noting how John had not yet been put in prison, is what it says. 
you combine that with the fact that people are still, again, regularly coming to John for baptism, and the picture is of a ministry that is constant, a ministry that is popular, a ministry that is fruitful, and as yet, a ministry that is free still from the persecution that will eventually follow it. Everything seems okay. And perhaps there's thought. It will stay that way. Their ministry will continue to thrive in spite of the perceived encroachment of Jesus upon it. His being thrust to center stage will not push them out to the margins. But, in verse 25, John details an encounter that will push John's disciples to a bitter kind of rivalry or jealousy. I have this talk you see there with a Jewish person on the subject of purification and certainly then a conversation about baptism. Now, this might have involved any number of things. Why is John baptizing at all? Why is he not aligning with formal Judaism? He's out in the wilderness. Why isn't he doing this in Jerusalem? Why does a a Jewish person need proselyte baptism? What was their, their baptism even about? But from what follows, it appears there might have also been discussion at some point about the baptismal ministry of Jesus. Uh, Maybe the Jewish person here wondered, are we talking about different baptisms? Uh, Is his baptism better than John's baptism? Some are not going to John now. They're now going over to, to Jesus. Is he starting a new kind of school here? Are Jesus and his disciples in some way marginalizing these disciples and their teacher, John? And don't we know that is how sin and Satan work to ruin many a good ministry? By making us great in our own eyes. So that we cannot tolerate any notion of being a humble servant to Christ and His people, which is really what is great in God's eyes. They'll take occasion, that is sin and Satan, they'll take occasion by God-given success to tempt us. You did that. Your worth is in that. You are So that when Jesus, of all people, claims His own by a God-given kind of reformation, we are offended. So you see, they go from the talk to John with questions and concerns most likely born out of mistaken identity, sinful self-importance, and the old fool that we know as pride. And it's out of this God complex then that they say to their teacher, you see there, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is, gasp, baptizing people. All are going to him. Did you hear it? It appears they've been had. Now to be charitable, I think we can say they have a genuine concern for John. They, of course, love their teacher. And they desire him to have a long and fruitful ministry, and so they are hot and bothered that he is bleeding would-be disciples to the will-be blood of Christ, that Lamb of God. Rabbi John, they're all going to him. 
They haven't gotten it, have they? I mean, they've heard John's testimony about Jesus. They bring it up right here. That they've heard it. And so they, they aren't ignorant of what he said, but they are ignorant of what it means. Reality is, not only should they not be desiring this sort of revival project for John, but if they had really heard John, they should already be with Jesus. Like John's earlier disciples, Andrew and John, the gospel writer, and Peter, and so on. But here they are thinking, it seems, that Jesus maybe owes John something. Okay? Didn't John honor Jesus after all? And this is the thanks we, or I mean he, gets in return. Our guy is going to say great things about you, and you're going to just put him out of the baptism business? Did you note that even though people are continuing to come to John, the report is again, is that all are going to Jesus? Talk of echoing the fall. Right? If we don't have all, if we don't have everything, we have nothing. Their perspective is all out of whack. You see what they don't see, right? John's work, their work, our work is precisely this. It's to do all we can to prepare, to give over, to escort a people to Jesus. And this has got to speak beyond our ears and into our hearts. See, it is possible to be engaged in the ministry of God like they were. And even to be aware that Jesus is the point of it all as they had heard. And yet in pride, miss and even rival the point of it all. In life and ministry, we need to be extremely watchful, extremely careful that we do not become an end in ourselves. That we aren't serving for our own sake. Building our brand. Constructing our stage by the wood of His cross. Wanting to wear so many crowns instead of just casting them all down to the ground at the feet of Jesus lodging our identity and our value in the rise and fall of our labors, muffling His voice in so many ways just to maintain the prominence of our own voice having the preeminence. First place. The temptation is as old as sin and very hard to put off perpetually. And this is why John's response is so wondrous. And of all examples necessary for each one of us to emulate in our own ways. Jesus is increasing. And John doesn't join even for a second in his disciples grumbling. See that? He doesn't say, yeah, you know, now that you mention it. I've been thinking the same thing. Who's that guy think he is? It's time to draw a line in the water. But in spite of this private opportunity to feel offended and to file a grievance, John feels and files nothing but a humble and joyful Christo 
centricity. Christ-centeredness. He throws a, a wet towel on the devil's flames. Jesus is increasing and John says, praise God. That's all I've been wanting to hear. Jesus must increase. Which is our second heading. In this gospel, at least, these are John's last words and we're to learn much from them. He begins, you see, verse 27, that a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You were just sad on that. How humbling and correcting. When we're prone to think that we're the architects of our lives, we're, we're prone to think that we're the builders of a particular ministry, that all is the direct result of our greatness. John says, all we are, all we have, all we have done, if it's good, is the unmerited gift of God to us. It's all been received. And if so, then, what becomes of our pride? Beloved, it's so wondrous, right? That John takes zero credit for his wildly successful ministry. He understands he's not the hand behind it. He's just the beggarly instrument in that hand. And so he sees every stage of ministry and every stage in ministry and every season of ministry and every repenting soul that came to him as the kind providence of God. Minus sovereign grace. We can bear no good fruit. None. Not even one. So I'm reminded of an old poet preacher named George Herbert. He'd be about the work of ministry and his folks would tell him, Oh, George, you're just the best. <laughs> He'd tell him how well he was doing, how great and fruitful he was. Such a great preacher. Your sermons are so good, George. This is how he would reply. He told them, it's all less than the least of Christ's mercies. Man. All less than the least of Christ's mercies. Or I think of Paul who said he worked harder, he worked harder than all the other apostles and he was most fruitful among them only to qualify it. It was not him, but the grace of God that was with him. And so brother, sister, like why, might I ask, are you even inclined to the Christian sort of ministry in the first place? A perilous thing. A perilous thing. Fraught with hardships. Replete with tears. As well as wonders. Is it not because God gave you a new heart? Is it not because He caused you to be born again? Is it not because He gave you love for Christ? 
And do you want to know how to know if you've really internalized this? It stings a bit, but I'll go ahead and ask it. Do you pray? Do you pray? Or do you just charge into your day as if you were able to receive even one thing apart from the grace of heaven? Are we God's beloved beggars? Are we universally dependent upon Him? Well, John's point here is to teach His disciples the lesson of Job's life for their ministry. The Lord gives... And the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We are entirely beholden to heaven's will for all things. But now he continues. That he is not the Christ. This is vital for us to file away in our hearts. That his disciples, that John's disciples are disturbed by Christ. Tells us that while this should be obvious, it's not always so. That we are not the Christ. It's not always so when we're doing ministry or asking of ministers the very attributes and abilities of God. The God-man. All-powerful. All-knowing. All-competent. All-gracious. All-present. All-things. To all-souls. All-the-time. Nor is it always so obvious when rather than asking or demanding deity... We still yet deify. Uh, We live in a culture that idolizes celebrities, right? And that culture has seeped into what the church should be. It's seeped into what the church's gospel culture should be, where Christ alone is king. But instead, we often find these rock star pastors. We have preacher worship. And personality cults and substitute Christ. And men and women more than happy to accept that and cultivate it. But John, for his own part, when seriously asked whether or not he was the Christ, replied, I am not. That's amazing. I'm not. He flat refused the notion that Jesus may have His glory. I have my role from God. And what a great role it is to be a grateful servant of Christ and His church. Now, John did have a unique office as the forerunner of Christ, no doubt. But all the more reason as our ministry is more typical to keep a right estimate of ourselves. John keeps a right estimate of himself. And I wouldn't be surprised if he was greatly helped in this regard by the parable that he leaves to us in verse 29. If you look there, he tells his disciples this. He says, listen guys, the one who has the bride, that's the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, he says, this joy of mine is now complete. So it's short and it's sweet and it is solemn. 
and sobering. Who has the bride? Who has the bride? That needs to be the constant question for minister and member alike, for the friend and for the bride alike. John, right, surely understanding that the Lord is Israel's groom, understands then that He is not the groom. The people of God do not belong to John. They are not John's to have. That eternal bride belongs to Jesus. And where that is clear to all, all else falls into place. But where it's not, nothing but trouble ensues. In this day, the friend of the groom was responsible for facilitating the union between the bridegroom and the bride. It was making sure that everything went smoothly and as planned. He's sort of a, a wedding director. It was not to steal away the bride. It was not to creep in and play the groom. You do that. You espouse a runaway bride and you are due a beatdown. Okay? And how many need it today? I wonder. How many among you and me? I wonder. If needed, may Christ mercifully but effectually administer that beatdown. Beloved, the one who thinks the bride is their own when she is not at all is no friend to the bridegroom. The friend of Christ rejoices greatly at the sound of His voice because He loves Him and He loves the bride just in a way that only desires the consummation of their forever union. And so, beloved, to speak to some part of that bride, it is incumbent upon us to preserve pure affections for Jesus. It's incumbent upon us to give His honor to no man. To have Him only as our head. And so to keep His friends in check. <laughs> to ensure the, the true preaching of His Word. To safeguard the true ministry of the Gospel. To keep eyes for Him alone. And to that end, two things. Number one, I have no problem at all telling you that neither I nor any of your pastors are Jesus. I know none of you are under that presumption. <laughs> but, I just want to be clear about it. We love you. Okay? We really do. We love you and want nothing but God's best for you. And, and we will aim then in all that we do to labor only for your highest joy in Jesus but, in the process of all that, we will fail you. We will not always get it right. We will be imperfect. We will drop the ball. We will sin against you. We are not Jesus. 
We're not the chief shepherd. We too are sheep in need of Him. We are not the bridegroom. We too are a little piece of His his bride. We're not the one who has loved us and given Himself up for us on the cross that we might be eternally saved from our sins and for the glory of God. At our best, we are just the friend. We're the ones trying to facilitate your love for Him above all. Trying as one put it, to conduct the sacred marriage as guardians of his spouse. Which brings me to that second thing. And it's that truest mark of the friend, a true minister of Jesus. He rejoices supremely in the voice of Jesus. And in this, John's humility shines All the brighter. Why? Who is John? Who is he? I am the voice. That's who John is. He's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But he refuses to take more joy in his voice His great voice is still just a servant voice. It's meant only to magnify God's word about Jesus. That's it. The friend stands in the pulpit or whatever and he puts down the soapbox to preach the scriptures. The friend refuses to preach himself. The friend repulses to elevate himself above the Word of God. The friend recoils to stand over it and then pick and choose his spots that may make him look good, may may make him seem competent, may make him appear to be something that he's not, but only finally reveals him to be no lover of Christ or church. The friend does what he can to be faithful to the bridegroom's voice. Even if it means the end of his ministry. He just wants Christ to increase. To bring it back to John, then, I love this. As he looks upon the scene of ministry and sees Christ increasing, he sees all his joy. Isn't that the way it should be? You look out there, see Jesus increasing amongst the flock, and you are fully happy. Even the brightest candle appreciates most of all the dawning of the sun. Its purpose in the night is achieved. That baton is passed. It'd be silly, wouldn't it, for a candle to desire its light over the noonday? Though sadly... I fear many churches exist under such silliness and the relative darkness that follows. And to be sure, John's disciples, I mean, we're seeing it right here in the text, John's disciples might have gone that route. 
if John hadn't taught them the great lesson, he must increase. But I, amazing words, so supernatural, I must decrease. That's against everything we want to do. But that is the balance beam of joy in the Christian life and ministry. It's essential. Less me, more Jesus. Please and thank you. Ever thought that your joy in Christ is not about you or me being made much of, but about you and me making much of Jesus? Wow. Again, how necessary. Beloved, whether we're about our increase or Christ's, will direct the sort of life and ministry we lead. If it's all about us, Christ will be our rival. We will live to please man, not God. We will avoid pain instead of welcoming it for His sake. We will crater on convictions when we're confronted about them. But if we're really all about Christ's increase, how freeing and how mobilizing when chains and decapitation call on Christ's account as they will for John. Or even if it's not the loss of our heads, but just the loss of our popularity, or the loss of our reputation, or the loss of just some piece of the church growth pie. Will we then rejoice greatly so long as Jesus is increasing? Beloved, as one said, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. John had a generous amount of this rare grace. And he had it from start to finish. So important. One noted that, quote, despite his success, he was the same man at the end of his ministry as he was at the beginning. Always, all about the glory of Jesus and the bride's joy in Jesus. And so another said this, he says, happy is that church whose ministers are as steady and as bold and as constant to one thing as John the Baptist. It is a lesson, he says, that must be learned in every age that it is never the part of a servant to displace the master. And it's only to reinforce that, that John the Beloved, not the Baptist, the Beloved, the writer of the Gospel, closes chapter 3 the way he does. Jesus cannot increase enough. Third heading. You say, Brian, we got it. We're good. (laughs) I hope we do. But, would John have given us verses 31 to 36 if he thought we didn't need it? You see, what he does is give the doctrine behind the parable. He gives the lecture behind the living. John gets it. Some people prefer stories. Great. Okay. But every Christian needs 
sound doctrine. Still others cry, just tell us what to do. (laughs) Need all that stuff. Just tell us what to do. Not realizing you don't get to be as John the Baptist was without years of internalized thought on doctrine. Here, the doctrine of Christ. And so when I was in school, I'm sure many of you can attest to this, you had, you had class, right? And then you have practicum. Class, and then you have practicum, which ideally work together to make something they like to call a master of divinity, but you can be the judge of that as it relates to me. Point being, there is creed, there is creed behind what we have seen in John. He said Jesus must increase, and the gospel writer says, yes and amen. He cannot increase enough. He is preeminent. And he now teaches this by way of our Lord's uniqueness. He first says, you look at verse 31, he says that Jesus is from where? From above. He's an alien of sorts. He's from above. He's come down to us from heaven. And in short, that means he's above all. We need to be careful. Just because he took on a jar of clay doesn't mean he's a jar of clay like we are jars of clay. Not exactly anyway. He's still the heavenly one. Remember from the prologue, he's still God in the flesh. And as such, he's not just John's, John the Baptist's sort of annoyingly gifted cousin. He is John's Lord. So, if we ask who or what is greater than God, we can ask the same about Jesus. Being from above, He's above all. He is preeminent. But John continues and relates it in verses 32 to 34 to the testimony then that Jesus bore. Like none other, He's come down. And like none other, He has Spoken. You see, it's true that insofar as a person is faithful to the text of Scripture, they have, in a sense, given us the very Word of God. And yet, in the midst of it, you all know us well enough to know by now, we can preach from pride. We can put things unwisely, phrase them unwisely. We can teach unclearly and even errantly. But Jesus testified as no man ever did. Because being God, he knew God. And knowing God to the degree that only God can, he was a perfect expositor of God. His words are the exact testimony of the Father to the Word. He said nothing but what the Father desired. So, while Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, is called the Prince of Preachers, Spurgeon would be the first to tell you, no man preaches well who does not preach Christ everywhere. Who does not understand Jesus to be both the great sermon 
and the great sermonizer of God Himself. He is the truth. Christ is. You want to know God? you got to believe Jesus. If you reject Jesus and what Jesus has said, which, verse 32, we all did by nature, you do nothing less than call God a liar. And so, Jesus is the Lord of heaven. And as we've seen already in John's Gospel, He is the Word of God. He's the one that angels worship above and through whom God is manifest to man below. But His glory is greater still. It's with Him and Him alone that man, sinful man, can be raised up to heaven. You see verse 35. How the Father loves the Son as His own self. And how in that love there is an infinite degree of trust. All things, John says, have been given into the hands of Jesus like grace and justice. Eternal life and its opposite in hell. Salvation and judgment. The entire landscape of God's redemptive purpose in the world. Christ is the sovereign. He's the sovereign. And He's the fault line. The salvation we all need was vouchsafed by God to Jesus alone. And as if there was ever any doubt, He alone has achieved that salvation. He came down to reveal God supremely where? On the cross. And just there, we know Him. To have borne our sins. That God might declare us freely and fully justified in His sight. Amazing. If ever you will be justified, friend, it will be by the mercy of Christ. That's it. That it's in His hand means that that is in no one else's hand. No one else can let you in to God. You can't pry His hand open. But the good news, the Gospel, is that you don't have to. It's open already to anyone who believes in Him. And you must believe in Him. You absolutely must believe in Him or you will have nothing. What does he say? Nothing but the wrath of God. Verse 36, that already abides on you right now. You need to understand that you are in unspeakable peril this very moment. But you don't have to be. Jesus is the Lord of heaven. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the sovereign of salvation. He came down to reveal the grace of God to you. And so it is. And I pray then that you'll just turn from your unbelief. That you'll turn from your disobedience to God and you will believe in this glorious Jesus. 
who believe in this preeminent Christ, who did nothing by it except give Himself over to your judgment, just that you might be saved through Him. Beloved, in all this, the point is only, we must decrease and Jesus must increase. Is Jesus increasing with you? Is Jesus increasing with us? If so, it will not be by just closing our eyes and, and, and wishing upon a star and just shouting at ourselves, be less, be less, be less. <laughs> That's not how it's going to happen. It'll be by realizing that we neither are nor can do one thing pleasing to God apart from Jesus. As he himself will say in a couple years in John 15. People who are becoming less are not becoming less because they're so great. But because they've seen more of the greatness of Jesus. He will increase in our conduct and in our conversation and in our preaching and in our gathering and in our life and in our ministry not because we are so competent for this but when we realize we are not at all. When we realize we need Him who is all we need. We are so slow. Rightly so, to dispense of things that we perceive to be indispensable. What we determine to be essential. And my hope this morning is that we rediscover that determination every day about Jesus. It's that John's tribe may increase here who are joyfully decreasing that Jesus may have His due in greater glory. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how it challenges us. I pray that you yourself would now go beyond the mere words of a man, a sinner, one who looks to you for everything, or at least needs to. And I just pray that you would go farther and that you would push your word into the hearts of everyone here. Please cause the lost to be found and the found to be built up. May we all go out the doors this morning with a greater understanding of Christ, a greater sight of Him, a greater joy in Him, a greater resolve to become less if only you might become everything. We ask it in your name. Amen.